the option. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're glad, we're glad you're here. We're working on making sure that doesn't happen again, by the way. Um, so uh, all of us, everybody, everybody in the room has experienced um, an identity-shifting moment. So something happened to you or, or you took on um, a, a, you know, a promotion at job or you became a parent or a promotion at work or became a parent or whatever. And there's something about like who you are. You kind of stepped into a, a new identity and then there's all these sort of ripple effects that, that emanate out from who you are. Um, we talked about last week that behavior follows identity. Behavior follows identity. And so just, you know, kind of as an example, uh, I remember being a renter and having my utilities included in my rent. And you better believe that when you're a renter and somebody else is paying your utility bill, your behavior follows that identity. So, you know, it can be I don't know, it can be 20 degrees outside and you're thinking like, well, I'm going to crank this thing up to 80 because I'm not, I'm not paying the bill. And so you're inside in flip-flops and a tank top because you don't, you're not worried about it. But then you become a homeowner and you step into homeownership and all of a sudden you get that first bill from the energy company and then you're Googling, you're like, what's the lowest possible temperature? My pipes won't freeze in the winter. And your children are saying things like, dad, we're cold. And you're like, that's why God invented sweat sweaters and you're just it just changes your identity just just that one little shift it changes who you are the way you think kind of the way you behave the the things that matter to you so these are identity shifting moments in our lives and they, we've all had them and, and they're all in all sorts of different ways but what we've been doing in this sermon is is exploring the ways in which the resurrection was for the people who witnessed it an identity shifting moment so there's these people, and they saw Jesus. They interacted with this human being that, that they didn't understand he was divine. And then he died. And they saw him come down from a cross. Be, be, he had to be carried down from a cross because he was dead and put in a tomb. And then later, they saw him alive again. And that was an identity-shifting moment for them. It changed, the, it changed what they thought the world was and the way that they thought the world worked. Because in the world that they knew, if you died, you don't come back. That's not the way things work. It was an identity-shifting moment for them. And these guys, they, they were like, not only does it change everything for me, but it really should change everything for everybody. And they just went out everywhere, preaching, writing, all kinds of things to try to help people understand like this moment in history changed everything for everybody. It's the, it, what matters to us, the way we interact with the world, the way we think about our life, the way we think about our death. So when we, when we talk about this idea, that, that this series, this begin again, what we're understanding is that the resurrection changes so many things in our lives right now, our day-to-day -day practical life. I want to read an excerpt from a letter that one of these guys wrote, and, um, and it's kind of this essay on the resurrection and the kind of the way it works in our lives. And I, and I have to warn you, because there's a word in this essay that gets people in the Church of Christ super duper excited. We see this word, and then all of a sudden we can't think about anything else. It's kind of like my little guy, when he thinks he hears the ice cream truck, it doesn't matter what was going on in life. He's just totally consumed with, with whatever it is. He's running into the house, Daddy, do you have any dollars? Do you have any dollars? You know, everything, all priorities have shifted because he thinks he heard the ice cream truck. Well, the word we're going to read today is a little bit like that for Church of Christ people because we love this word, we love this concept, and rightly so, 
It's good. It's a good concept. But sometimes what happens is, is once we see this concept, we kind of lose the point of what was being discussed here. And so we're going to read this passage of Scripture, one that's been read at millions of baptisms throughout history. But I want you to see that the idea that he's talking about, the word is baptism, the idea that he's talking about actually serves this point that he's making, but it isn't the point. So as you read it, maybe just try to kind of like take a step back and see what Paul is talking about in this passage. It's, it's so good, and baptism serves the point he's making. Is baptism important? Somebody's going to hear me because you're Church of Christ, you're going to be like, you said baptism, and the whole sermon wasn't about baptism, so you don't care about baptism. That's not, how, that's not what we're, what's going on here. But it's, he's making a point about how the resurrection plays itself out in our lives. All right, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And this is bad chapter division strike again. You know that the chapter divisions weren't in the original, and here we're coming in on the middle of a conversation, but that's okay. He, Paul has been discussing grace, and he's been saying, grace is awesome, it's amazing, it changes everything. And he knows how people think, so he knows people are going to be like, well, hey, if grace takes care of sin... God likes giving grace. I like sinning. I should sin more so God can give more grace. It's a win-win. Everybody, like, this is awesome. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way it works. All right? So we're coming in on the middle of this, and he says, this is a rhetorical question, essentially. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. It's ridiculous, is what he's saying. God didn't bail you out of jail so you could go commit crimes. That's not how it works. God didn't pay off your credit card debt so you could immediately go charge something. That's not how it works. God doesn't take care of our sin so that we can keep sinning. That's not how this works. But he knows people are going to be thinking like that. It's just not, not the way it is. But this is, this is the argument he makes. Verse 2, second part of verse 2. By no means we are those who have died now, again, resurrection language. Remember I told you that the resurrection for these guys changed everything and they incorporate, incorporated that language into everything that they wrote, everything that they thought. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There's your resurrection language. Now, I, I kind of get what he's getting at, but, but we don't sin because we died to sin. I mean, and I think Paul senses their confusion about that statement a little bit and he starts in verse 3. He goes, or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? And there's the word baptism. And we're like, oh, baptism. You know, let's shoot off confetti and fireworks. We love that word. It's a great word. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Resurrection language. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right. I think most of us are like, okay, I... I, I I have a sense of what he's talking about, but what Paul is saying is that your baptism was an identity-shifting moment. Everything shifted for you. Every, your priorities became different. Your way of interacting with the world and viewing other people, it, it shifted at baptism. Your baptism was an identity-shifting moment. You went from dead to alive, and there's all these ripple effects. There's all these implications. I, I kind of, I think I get it, baptism is kind of like Jesus dying on the cross, and when Jesus rose again, he was new, and when I come out of the waters of baptism, I, I'm new. We get a sense of that. We, we get that. But Paul's about to take this argument kind of the next level, and, and Paul's an incredibly 
brilliant guy. He's a well-educated guy, and he's about to go very uh, like Professor Paul on us. So I want you to follow along with what he's saying here, because we love this verse, we love reading this, but I want you to see the meat of what Paul is trying to communicate with this idea. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, again, he's still talking about baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, eventually, that'll be true. Everybody dies, comes back. But he's still talking about this idea of how baptism was an identity-shifting moment for us. You follow the thread. Now, he's about to make this surprising connection here. And this is really important. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Well, Okay, I, okay, symbolically, I get it. We died. We were like Jesus crucified. This old life is done. It's gone. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is, this is really good. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, what he's saying is Jesus beat death. Jesus had this fight with death. Death landed its best blow the best shot it could take, it did what it could do, and it couldn't defeat Jesus. And so now Jesus is untouchable by death. He's untouchable. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 11, in the same way, and notice the shift here, because he's talking about death for Jesus, but he's talking about something slightly different that he connects with death for us. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. It's a familiar passage. We've read it many times. You've heard it many times. You've heard it at many baptisms. But you have to understand what Paul is trying to communicate. Just like death no longer has control over Jesus, sin no longer has control over us. Let's think about the past week. <laughs> how, how is that playing out? I get it. I get it, but, but how is this working? How is this working? All right, that's a lot, that's dense, but I want to try to just unpack this just a little bit for us. What he's trying to tell us is that, that because of the re resurrection, sin, the relational dynamic that we had with sin has transformed. The relational dynamic that you had with sin has transformed. You remember being in middle school and there was that, playground bully and he would always beat people up and take their lunch money or whatever it was and then over the summer you grew nine inches and you put on a little bulk and you came back to school and that bully he still had the same attitude the same perspective the same way of thinking but he no longer had any way to control you he no longer had any way to threaten you he was still a bully but something about you had changed the relational dynamic that you had with sin has transformed and what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that we have to get that idea into our heads 
In the, in the verse that we just read where it says, count yourselves dead to sin, the word count is where we get the word logic. It's something that we have to realize, that we have to come to terms with in our head. And the, and the word do not let sin reign, the word reign is like do not let sin, it's, it's, a, it's a royal term for the, the power that a king has. Do not let sin have that kind of power. Don't let it. Now, as we think about this topic, I mean, I get that, all right, it all sounds good, that's awesome, relational dynamic has changed, sin was a bully, I'm in charge now, but, but I, 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 I don't know. I'm not sure that that experience plays itself out in Christians' lives in the way that Paul seems to think it should in Romans chapter 6. And all this sounds good. This is all good stuff, right? Now, as we talk about this idea, you got to, unfortunately, it sounds weird to say, but you got to talk about sin a little bit. I mean, despite the fact that many of you have grown up with an idea or a concept of sin, even if you didn't grow up in the church, our, our culture has a concept of what sin is. But it's, it's, it's a term that's relegated to Christendom. It's a term that's relegated to the religious world. And, and I think if we're all, I wonder if we're all working with the same idea of what sin is, what this schoolyard bully is. I wonder if we all have the same idea of what it is. And I think if we were to poll people, people would say something like, oh, you know, sin is things that God doesn't like us to do. Sin is things that, that, they're things that are bad for Christians to do. Something, something like that. Sin is, sin is something like that. But at the heart of some of this, I think there lies a suspicion about sin. That sin just might be something good or enjoyable that, that would make us, that would bring us happiness or pleasure that God is trying to keep from us. Now, maybe you don't have that idea of sin, but I think that's a pretty popular notion. And I'm not making this up. Here's, uh, here's an advertisement for a food truck uh, here in Minnesota. Food so good, it's sinful. Right? Now, this isn't like a religious food truck. But what they're saying is, like, what we have is so good that it's, it's almost sinful. Or, or think about this. You're, this is surprising. This took me about 10 minutes to do a little research to find out these examples. How about this? This is, uh, this is Jell-O. Temptations by Jell-O. There, there's two uh, products here on the next slide. Now, these are both like health food-oriented products. Sinfully delicious. A dietary supplement. Well, you lost me there. <laughs> With flaxseed, cacao, coconut, chia, and evaporated cane juice. Mmm, that sounds like something that I'm never going to buy. Or then my, this is the cover of a book. I, and I, I don't know. Is this a contradiction in terms? Vegan ice cream? Is that a thing? Over 90 sinfully delicious dairy-free delights. Sinfully delicious. Why is it sinfully delicious? Because there's something at the heart of this that's good, that you want. It's sinful because it's good. Or how about this? This is, um, I mean, I, I, have you ever been to uh, Las Vegas? What's, uh, what's the nickname of Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah. I gave you a little hint on that. Screen there. Sin City. This is actually from a softball invitational presented by Toyota. Sin City Invitational. Well, this is our culture. This isn't like Christian people. This isn't like non-Christian people. This is just the way our culture engages with the concept of sin. That sin, you see what the subtext is in all of these? The subtext is, is that sin is actually something, the heart of which may be good, and for whatever reason, the religious world has decided you shouldn't participate because maybe God doesn't want you to have fun. Maybe there's a bunch of religious busybodies that don't want you to have fun. But the, but the root of it, the suspicion is, is that sin is something good that God is keeping you from. 
Sin is something good that God is keeping you from, and I will decide for myself what is sin and what is not sin. Now, this is not a new problem. You can trace this back to the very first pages of the Bible, that sin is something good, and God is keeping you from it. And you should decide for yourself if it's really, truly sinful, if it's really, truly wrong, if it's really, truly right. Think about some of the things that were spoken in the first few pages of the Bible with regard to what God had told Adam and Eve not to do. Is it really wrong? Will it really kill you? What, what are you missing out on? What is God keeping you from? Sin, in our minds, and, and maybe we don't ever express this idea, but in our minds, in many people's minds rather, there's this suspicion that maybe sin is something good that God is keeping us from. All right, well, well what do we, I mean, sin, that's a big bucket. Like, what is in that bucket? What do we label sin? What's going on there? What are, what are sins? Well, fortunately, Professor Paul has given us a handy-dandy list that we can, we can view for sin. Now, the Bible doesn't ever come out and say, here's all the sins that you can commit, but the Bible, what it often does is give us sketches of sins. Like, here's a portrait of sin. Here's what sin can look like. And in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul gives us that. Romans chapter 1, verse 29. He talks about people, like, without God, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Oh, and thank the Lord that's not us. We're not filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. But then Paul goes on to identify some of those things. And it gets a little less comfortable because when you're thinking about depravity, you're like, that sounds bad. That's not me. I don't know. Depravity sounds like... Sounds like Sin City, something that might happen in Las Vegas, but not me, not in good old Minnesota. But this is what he says. This is the sketch that he provides in Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 29. They're full of envy. Oh, okay, well that hits a little closer to home. Envy, yeah, I did, you know, I did see that guy driving that car, and that was a really nice car, and then I thought, like, well, he's probably just all about his car, but, you know, really at the heart of what was going on was envy. And then he says murder. Oh, well, pff, that's not me, fortunately, <laughs> got off on that one. I remember preaching at a, uh, a church uh, one time, and it was uh, back in the day when churches often did revivals, like we long, long revivals, and I was talking about this idea, and I was like, raise your hand if you ever murdered anybody. Well, you know, I clearly don't expect anybody to raise their hand, uh, and, and nobody did, fortunately, but uh, somebody pulled me aside later and said, this guy over here in the audience got out of prison after like 27 years for murder. And I was like, oh man, I should be careful because sometimes this does apply to us, right? It could happen. Maybe it's in here. Now, envy, okay, maybe that fits me. Murder probably doesn't fit me. Strife, conflict, you ever have relational conflict? Uh, I guess so. Deceit, yeah, that's true. I fudge the truth sometimes to make myself look better. Malice, that sounds like a legal term. That probably doesn't fit me. But you notice it's almost like every other one. One, we're like, no way, that's not me. And then the next, we're like, oh yeah, I guess I kind of do. That happens. Or, or how about this? They are gossips. Like, oh, I don't gossip. I just share really <laughs> detailed prayer requests. It's not gossip. Uh, slanders, like trying to get people to think differently about someone else, a third party. God-haters, well, that's not us. We don't know. That's clearly not us. We're doing good now because we're not a God-hater. Insolent, well, it's not even a term we use, but it could be translated something like disrespectful. And all the parents are like, oh, the teens, right? No, no, it's insolent. I mean, it's not that big. Arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. And the worst thing you could possibly do, that the, the very worst sin, verse uh, 31, 
they did, or 30, they disobey their parents. You've got God-haters and murderers, and the same list is disobedience to parents, right? And parents are like, amen, and teens are like, this is intense. Like, this, I don't like this very much at all. But then, of course, parents were kids at one time, and did you always obey your parents? No, right? I did, but you didn't. Verse 31, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And you're like, oh, okay, well, some of that fits, some of that sticks, some of that doesn't, but like, but see, we're starting to get a better grasp on what God is trying to get us to understand when it comes to sin. So, all right, we can sit here and we can say, sure, some things are a sin, I get it, but are these other things that we're told to avoid or not to do, are they really so bad? All right? I think we really need to get a good picture of, of this idea. And I want, what I want us to do, we're just going to show you three verses where the Bible describes this concept of sin. Not lists, but a concept of sin throughout Scripture. And they're, they're pretty interesting. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is actually the first time, this is a little trivia you can use next time you're with some church nerd buddies. This is the first time the word sin is used in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. He says, he says this is God talking to Cain, because uh, Cain's really upset that God didn't accept his sacrifice. He's, you know, he's mad, like what's going on? And God's like trying to, to reason with him. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Of course, rhetorical question, you will be. But if you do not do what is right, sin is, and this is a good word. This is a good word because it, it describes what a predator does before it leaps on its prey. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So he's talking to people, I mean, for us, maybe this isn't a big deal, but for someone who lived when Cain did, is that just the wind rustling the grass, or is that a lion? Sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to eat you alive. What a vivid description of sin. Wow. Look at this next one. This is in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 13. He talks about this sin that he's, uh, Isaiah is judging the nation of Israel for. This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. This was an actual problem that we see recorded in the Bible a number of times where people are just minding their own business and all of a sudden whatever building that wasn't built to, you know, building codes just collapsed and people died. And so you can imagine, like, you, I mean, you would relax a little bit, like, at a party, but you might be like, so who, who built this wall? Who built this building? You know, you can't just, we can't just relax, because what if the thing comes down? And he's saying sin is like that. Sin gets in your life, and it undermines the foundations of your life till your life falls apart. That's what he's saying. Sin is a predator who's crouching, ready to eat you alive. Sin is the, the undermining of the foundations of your life until it collapses. Well, all right, that's Old Testament. What about New Testament? What about Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't really uh, paint a more rosy picture. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, If your right eye, why right eye? I don't know. But if your right eye causes you to sin, oof, that's vivid. Gouge it out. Just get rid of it. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then in verse 30, he repeats the same thing with your right hand. If your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away. Now, was Jesus saying, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand? Did Jesus believe that sin originated in the eye or in the hand? No. 
That's not what he's saying, but he's saying this is how dangerous sin is. And, and this is speculation, but I believe he was talking about sin is like an infectious disease, that leprosy or gangrene that's going to continue to spread, and the only solution is to amputate. You've got to get rid of that. You have to get rid of that. And so we think of sin, oh man, so wow, what vivid descriptions. And so it's not a subtext. We think of sin as something good that my, God might be trying to keep us from, but God would define it completely different. Sin is not something good God is trying to keep us from. Sin is something deadly that God is trying to protect us from. And so when we're kind of toying around with like, is it bad, is it wrong? God's like, you guys are nuts. Do you not realize? Do you not realize what it can do to you? Do you not realize what's going on? Do you not realize what's, what's going on behind the scenes? And God has tried so many different ways to explain to humanity that no, sin is bad. It's bad. And we're like, well, is it really bad? Is it really just a little, just a little lust, just a little greed, just a little gossip? Is it really that bad? What's the real big deal? What's the real harm? And the problem is, the reason I think we think so differently about sin is we tend to think about sin in terms of its actions, and God tends to describe and think about sin in terms of its impacts. We think about sin in terms of its actions, and God thinks about it or describes it in terms of its impact. So we think about, what's a little greed? What's a little lust? What's a little, you know, fudging the truth? No big deal. What's a little bit? It's not a problem. And God's like, do you not understand? It's, it's, it's crouching at the door. It's undermining the foundations of your life. I mean, you got, it's spreading through your body. You've got to deal with it. It's not just this mi- minor, benign little thing. It's something serious. It's something, it's something problematic. Most of you know that uh, Karina and I did foster care for about a year and a half, and uh, uh, the, the kids are doing in- incredibly well. I'll tell you more about that, I'm, I'm sure, at, at some point. But we still get these emails uh, from the foster care agency, probably weekly, and the emails are like, here's a list of kids who need a home. And as you read through those stories, you read like, you know, here's this 18-year-old, and here's a little bit about their background, and here's what they need, and just you know, they don't, they don't share the names because of privacy, but they're, they tell you their ages, their first initial. Here's A that needs this. Here's, here, here's J that needs this. And they just go down this list, this list, this list. And you read that email, and, and I read them. It's heartbreaking. Because you read that, and you read that, and you're like, you know, as you follow that thread of this foster child's story back to its root, what caused that separation, what caused the disintegration of that family was sin. And it was someone who said, just a little greed, just a little lust, just a little of this. And you follow that back and you're like, oh, there's sin at the root of that. And these kids are paying the cost. And you know what? You read that and you're like, those parents, those no good deadbeat parents. And then you meet some of the parents. And the reason that their lives are so out of control and dysfunctional, if you trace that back, it's sin. And it's sin in the lives of their parents or it's sin in the lives of someone that abused them. And they're just, without knowing any different, they're just perpetuating that abuse on the next generation. It's sin that causes that devastation and that destruction. Sin is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So good it's sinful. Sinfully delicious. It's heartbreaking. Listen, God hates sin because he loves people. That's why. He's not trying to keep us from something. He's trying to protect us from something that is going to ruin our lives. Now, our reaction to sin is a lot more intuitive when we come at it from the right direction. 
when we think of it as like God's trying to prevent us from something fun, then of course we're like, well, I don't know, I'll decide for myself. But when we understand that it's something deadly God is trying to protect us from, totally different, totally different. And, and side note, I should just say this, often because we have such a light, casual attitude towards sin that we have virtually zero grasp on grace, salvation, atonement, redemption. We just don't understand what those concepts mean because we don't understand the devastation of sin. It just doesn't mean anything to us. We're like, thanks God for the grace. And God's like, you realize the cycle of sin that I'm breaking in your life that you have access to? Full circle, Romans chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. And this is the reaction. This is the response. In the same way, count yourselves. This is something that has to happen in our mind. You have to know this. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. My uh, dad was born in Scotland. His parents had immigrated from Ireland over to Scotland when he was, uh, uh, before he was born, born in Scotland. And then when he was 11, they came to New York City. Now, this would have been back in the late 60s, uh, 70s, and uh, New York had a reputation for being a pretty dangerous place. Uh, it wasn't, you know, you just didn't wander around Times Square. It was dangerous. Crime rates were soaring through the roof. It was just a, a dangerous place. And my dad, I remember him telling me this story a long time ago about uh, he and his buddy uh, were just out and about, and a couple guys came up and tried to mug him. They had a big, you know, baseball bat, log, something like that, and they're like, you know, Classic, give us, give us all your money. And, you know, my dad's not like a karate expert. He's not a weightlifter. He's not, you know, some sort of big, hulking, intimidating-looking person. And he and, and the guy he was with is even smaller. And I know him as well, a small guy. And they were like, they were like no, we, we don't want to give you our money. And, and you could just imagine the muggers, like, that's not the way this works, like, you give me the money or we, you know, we beat you up. We're in charge here. We're calling the shots. And my dad said they just kind of hemmed and hawed and like, you know, tried to pretend they didn't have any money and pulled out their pockets. Like, see, we're broke too. You know, they had money, you know, like all this, all this stuff. And eventually the muggers just gave up. They just got tired of it and left. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't because my dad had, you know, was armed. It wasn't because, you know, he could, you know, beat him up with some special moves. It wasn't because he, you know, a Jedi Knight, you know, there's no money here. There's not, nothing like that. It was because eventually these guys, what they were is they were, they were bullies. They were full of bluster. And they were demanding something that they had no right to take. Sin is a bully, and it will try to demand that you give yourself up to it, but it doesn't have any right over you. Because of the resurrection, we can fight sin, but it's bigger than that. Because of the resurrection, we have to fight sin. We have to fight sin in our lives. It no longer has a claim over you. You don't have to go decades dealing with that same thing. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't have its, its, you know, its hands around you and it's not going to take work. It's not going to be a fight to get that sin, to cast away that sin. But sin no longer has a claim on you and you have to reckon yourselves with that truth. We have to be transformed by that truth that sin is no longer our master. We are dead to sin.
when we talk about the resurrection and the implications and the ripple effects of the resurrection, for these guys that witnessed it, this was like the number one thing that they felt. Here's what the resurrection has changed in my life. Sin no longer gets to call the shots. Sin no longer gets to have a say. Sin no longer gets to do what, it's, what it wants with my life. That cycle is broken. That's what they saw as the implication of the resurrection in their lives. It's a tremendous truth. And maybe it's going to take decades to work its way into our lives, but we have to understand that if you have a struggle with sin, because of the resurrection, you can begin again. You can you have access to a brand new start because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this truth. Lord, I, I imagine that if the Holy Spirit is doing anything right now, that he's working on our hearts, trying, reminding us of the areas of our lives that need to come into agreement with the truth of the resurrection. I pray that the Spirit would work deeply in our hearts, that it would remind us in those moments where we're tempted to say something we should not, to do something we should not, to look at something we should not, that sin doesn't get to call the shots. I pray that we would believe in the truth of the resurrection and the power that it provides in our lives to dramatically transform our choices, our way of thinking, our way of viewing the world, but God, our way of viewing ourselves Lord, help us to know that through Christ, we can begin again. It's in Jesus' name I pray.